Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we'll be looking at the New to Partnership Scheme, a three-year initiative that aimed to boost the number of partners in England, and asking, has it actually worked? We're discussing what's going on with funding for general practice across the UK, and what the uplifts agreed mean for practices. And we're going to look very briefly at the latest GP appointment data for England. And our good news story is about flu vaccination. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Before we start this week, I just want to mention that we've got a busy couple of weeks coming up on GP Online. This week, we're at the Best Practice Conference in Birmingham, where the BMA GP Committee for England has a dedicated stream of talks and discussions. And next week, we'll be at the Royal College of GP's annual conference in Glasgow. We'll be reporting on all the key stories from both of those events on our website, so visit gponline.com for all the latest news. Also, next week's podcast will be out a little bit early on Wednesday to coincide with the RCGP annual conference because we've got an exclusive interview with College Chair Professor Camilla Hawthorne, which is really worth a listen, so make sure you keep an eye out for that. First up, the New to Partnership programme was a three-year Golden Hello scheme that launched in 2020 to increase the number of partners and stabilise the partnership model. Under the initiative, those becoming a partner for the first time, including GPs and staff in other clinical roles, could receive payments of up to £20,000. Last week, GP Online published a story looking at the results of the scheme, which has now ended after we obtained data under a Freedom of Information request. Nick, this was something that you were working on. What exactly did you find? The Golden Hello scheme, officially the New to Partnership Payment Scheme, was dreamt up to try and attract new people into partnership roles in general practice, as you mentioned. And the figures we got from NHS England suggest that once the dust has settled and a handful of outstanding applications are processed, just over 3,000 people who took on partnership roles between March 2020 and March this year will have benefited from the scheme. Most of those, about 95% of them are are GPs, but there are nearly 120 uh, new partners who are nurses and pharmacists. And there are a handful of people from other roles, physios, paramedics, physician associates and mental health professionals. They're not all full time. And these 3,000 or so people translate to about 2,300 full time equivalent partners. If you look at how this compares with the total number of GP partners in England... The figures suggest that something like one in seven or eight of all full-time equivalent GP partners have come through the new to partnership payment scheme. So that's a really significant number, although obviously we have no way of knowing what proportion of people who applied for golden hellos would have taken on partnerships anyway. And in terms of how much money's been spent on this, it's, it's around £51 million across England in total. And successful applicants received just over £17,000 in total each. The funding covers not just the Golden Hello, which, as you said, is worth up to £20,000 per full-time partner, but also an additional 20% on top of that for on-costs. And those are the additional cost practices face for things like pension contributions and up to £3,000 more for effectively partnership training. And so has the scheme actually made a difference? You sort of mentioned there the proportion of partners who may have come through the scheme, but what does the data tell us overall about the number of partners in general practice in England and how that has changed over the past three years? 
Yes, interesting question. We know that there are about 25% fewer full-time equivalent GP partners in England now than there were in 2015. The decline over that period is really steep. And since this incentive scheme started in 2020, there's been a decline of about 7.5% in the number of full-time equivalent partners. So the scheme definitely hasn't stopped the decline But it is likely to have slowed the speed of the decline because even though we don't know exactly how many people took on partnerships solely because of this golden hello offer, it must have been a factor. And because the scheme requires people to stay in their partnership role for at least five years to benefit from the full funding available, it could help keep a sizable proportion of partners in general practice for some time to come. Another point to make here, though, is that although this scheme has probably kept partner numbers from really sliding into free fall, first-time partners aren't necessarily a like-for-like replacement for experienced partners who are leaving the profession. Yeah, absolutely. The figures you got from NHS England, they also had an interesting regional breakdown, didn't they? What did you find when you looked at that data in a bit more detail? I actually asked how much money had been spent on the scheme in each ICB, each integrated care board area across England and how many partners had been recruited in each of those areas. And NHS England said it couldn't provide a breakdown at that level, but it did offer figures for each of the seven NHS regions. So that's a you know slightly larger parts of the country. And even at that level, there are some significant differences in spending and numbers of people who've been recruited through the scheme. So that suggests that going down to smaller areas, the variation would have been even greater. And spending was highest in the northeast and Yorkshire region, nearly a fifth of the overall spend nationally. So something like £10 million was in that part of the country, which may reflect higher uptake in underdoctored areas. And at the other end of the scale, spending in London was only just over half the total for the northeast and Yorkshire. So for anyone who wants to explore these figures a bit more, we've published an article on GP Online with some tables and charts and setting out a lot of this information in much more detail. And so, you know, what have the BMA and GPs had to say about all this? Do they think it's it's been a success? The BMA England GP committee said it welcomed anything that helps keep doctors in general practice. And that this scheme in particular had, had likely encouraged doctors to take on extra responsibility and to put down roots. But as they pointed out, um, and we've talked about this often in the past, that the GP workforce as a whole remains in decline And doctors are burning out and leaving the profession. Dr Samira Anan, who's the England GP Committee Deputy Chair, said that the government and NHS England need to do more to retain the existing workforce alongside initiatives like this one that may help bring doctors into key roles at the start of their careers in particular. Earlier this year, the government agreed with the Doctors and Dentists Review Body, or DDRB, recommendations that salaried GPs and practice staff in England should receive a 6% pay rise. In a surprise move, the government actually agreed it would provide the additional funding needed to cover this in England. The five-year GP contract already had a 2.1% staff pay rise built into funding, so this additional money was intended to bridge the gap between that and the 6%. Last week, we finally got details on how the money would be distributed to practices. Nick, what exactly was agreed? It's been nearly three months since the government announced that it was going to uplift funding for general practice so that practices could award salary GPs and other employed staff a 6% pay rise for the 2023-24 financial year, which, as you said, is higher than the uplift originally planned as part of the five-year contract package. 
The BMA and the government have been in talk since July on how the uplift would work. And the agreement they've negotiated is an uplift to core funding for practices. So it's an increase in the global sum payments that they receive. And and just to explain what that means, the basic funding GP practices receive is determined by a formula that takes into account the, the actual number of people registered with each practice and then either deflates or inflates that number according to various factors that are linked to workload. And, and that formula is called the, the Global Sum Allocation Formula. And it's also known as the Carr-Hill Formula after the professor who invented it, a man called Roy Carr-Hill. So the formula converts actual patients into weighted patients. And it basically factors such as the age and sex of the patient population, things like rurality, numbers of new patients on a practices list and so on. And those factors are used to make this conversion. And then practices receive a payment per weighted patient instead of per actual patient on their list. To deliver the pay rise, the payment per weighted patient is going up by £2.45 to a total of £104.73 for this financial year. So that's something like an extra £25,000 per average practice compared with the amount that they were going to receive under the original five-year deal for this year. It's an extra investment of around £153 million across England as a whole. Yeah, so this is going to be backdated to April as well. But is it going to cover all of practices' costs or are some going to be left out of pocket if they provide the full 6% pay rise to staff? Back in July, when the government announced the 6% pay rise for salary GPs and other staff employed by GP practices and said that it was going to increase funding for general practice to cover that pay rise... We reported that decisions about the way this money is delivered to general practice would be really important. Delivering the funding through the global sum will mean that there are winners and losers for a number of reasons, which is something we've talked about before on this podcast. Accountants I've spoken to say that practices with more partners are likely to fare better, while those with more employed staff could do less well. Global sum payments are meant to deliver funding for three things broadly. Uh, It's pay for GP partners, pay for staff, including salary GPs and other expenses. And the staff pay element is meant to represent 44% of GP contract funding. Because the 6% pay rise has been awarded to staff, but not for GP partners, it's that bit of the contract funding that's been increased to deliver the pay rise. But while some practices may be bang in line with that ratio, 44% of funding going on staff costs, others may be further away from it, so they could lose out. And there are other factors such as whether practices employ staff with funding from other sources, such as enhanced services income to deliver something like a service for homeless patients. So income for services like that has not been uplifted because it's not linked to the global sum. So if practices award the 6% rise to a member of staff employed with income from another source like that, then they could lose out unless, of course, they can negotiate a similar uplift locally to that funding. One further point worth bringing in here is that the minimum wage increased by 9.7% from April this year. So any practice staff employed on the minimum wage have already seen a pay rise well above the 6% figure. So for those staff costs, this uplift goes some but not all of the way towards covering them. But the key point here is that 
practices aren't all set up in the same way. And that means that for some, the global sum uplift may deliver something like the level of funding they need to increase staff pay by the 6% promised, while for others, it won't. And where practices lose out, this is something that's going to compound the impact of unfunded pay rises in previous years and further drive down income. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that's worth mentioning as well is that the trainers grant, there's been an agreement that that's going to be uplifted by 6% this year. And part of the funding announcement and the update to the statement of financial entitlements for general in practice in England also covered dispensing fees. And there was some concern about that for dispensing practices as well, wasn't there? Yes, right. Alongside the increase in funding for practices as a whole, the government announced a change in the fee scale for dispensing practices. Uh, From October, fees under the sliding scale that determines how much dispensing practices receive per prescription will be cut by about 16% compared to the prices that have been in place since April this year. And the government also announced that fees would rise again by about 13% from next April. So moving back closer to where they are now, but not quite as high. The Dispensing Doctors Association, which represents dispensing practices, says this yo-yo effect on fees is really destabilising for dispensing practices because it affects cash flow and it makes it harder for these practices to plan and pay for their workforce. Part of the reason for this yo-yo issue, with fees going up and down rapidly, is that there's a, a fixed pot of funding available to cover dispensing costs each year. If dispensing practices hand out more prescriptions than expected and bust that budget, basically the government tries to claw back the overspending by cutting the fee scale for a period of time. That's what's happened here. What seems daft about this is the fact that if practices dispense more, it's more work. So you'd think that extra funding up to a point was justified. The mechanism just doesn't work like that. And it's also interesting to note that the reason there was a big overspend last year that's led to this big clawback now is to do with the COVID pandemic. During the pandemic, the population eligible for flu jabs doubled. So items dispensed by dispensing practices, which include flu jabs, went up massively. And now it's extra income from that that the government's seeking to claw back by reducing the fee scale. It's worth noting, too, that this isn't affecting just a tiny proportion of GP practices in England. There are something like 950 dispensing practices across the country, which provide a really vital service in rural areas. Those practices face all the other pressures that general practice is subject to across the country. And this is yet another challenge to their viability. Yeah, it was interesting. That announcement about the funding all came a week or so after the Dispensing Doctors Association called for a complete overhaul of how funding for dispensing works. And as part of that, they want to see improved representation in GP contract negotiations. The DDA, or Dispensing Doctors Association, called for the BMA to involve a dispensing doctor lead in future contract negotiations so that the needs of dispensing practices are properly taken into account. The DDA also says that many elements of dispensing funding are now really out of date and require urgent review if dispensing is to remain viable. I mean, you talked about the dispensing fee scale there and how much money is available for those fees is determined by the dispensing fees envelope, as you explained. But that envelope, that total amount of funding for dispensing is supposed to take account of costs and the amount of items practiced to dispense and also the pay award, we're coming back to the pay award again, recommended by the DDRB for practice staff each year. 
However, the DDA says that the fees have not been updated in line with pay recommendations since 2019, which it says is putting real pressure on dispensing practices, operating costs in particular, staff costs, which the DDA says means practices are struggling to fund the number of staff they need to run their dispensaries safely. I mean, in some ways, this does mirror what's going on in all practices in previous years because the five-year contract had pre-agreed increases built in, which didn't reflect what uh, the pay review body actually recommended for salary GPs, for example. I mean, this is the first year the government has agreed to fund the additional money to cover the recommended pay rise. So we're talking about that 6% uplift. Well, in a dispensing practice, the staff salaries in the dispensary will be covered by dispensing fees and those fees haven't been uprated to account for that. So that's another group of staff and those practices are not going to have got enough money to cover pay rises for all of those staff. The other issue is about reimbursement to cover the costs of buying drugs in dispensing practices, which the DDA is really worried about. The reimbursement is subject to something called the discount abatement mechanism, all these very complicated words about how general practice is funding. But that is effectively, it's a clawback deduction. It basically assumes that practices all receive a discount from suppliers on everything they buy. But that mechanism is now 25 years old. And the DDA says it no longer reflects what happens with supplier discounts because a lot of medicines and appliances that practices dispense no longer have any discount but the discounts still apply to them regardless. So practices are basically losing money every time they dispense one of those items. There's a lot of issues that probably really need to be resolved around dispensing because, as you mentioned, you know, dispensing practices are, are in rural locations and the reason they are dispensing practices is because there aren't many community pharmacies in those places. So they are really important for ensuring local people in these areas have timely access to medicines. So obviously... If dispensing starts to become financially unviable, it'll have a really big impact on those communities. There's another factor as well, isn't there, that, I mean, we haven't really come on to, but we've covered in the past stuff about drug shortages nationally and the impact that that has on standard GP practices in terms of having to reissue prescriptions for things that are out of stock. The DDA has said that for dispensing practices, that's a doubly impactful issue in that their staff, that they're not receiving proper funding for, are having to spend an increasing amount of time chasing around for things that are out of stock. Yeah, we're talking about funding there, but we've been talking very much about England there. But remember, the DDRB recommendations cover all four UK countries. So it's worth looking at what's happening outside of England as well. There's been some really worrying news about the state of general practice funding in Northern Ireland in the last week or so, hasn't there? What's going on there? Figures from the Northern Ireland Health Department show that GP funding fell by about 7% in real terms in 2022-23. It's not just a real terms drop either. Funding actually dropped in cash terms as well by about 1%. And this happened despite an increase in funding for, for GP pay and expenses that year. The BMA's Northern Ireland GP committee said a cut on this scale is astonishing, and particularly at a time when the profession is in what the BMA describes as an absolute crisis. Practices in Northern Ireland are facing the pressures their counterparts elsewhere in the UK are from rising costs and declining workforce, along with additional pressures from not having a fully functioning government that have affected funding in recent years. We also reported earlier this year that a third of practices in Northern Ireland had faced a serious risk of closure within the previous year and a half. So a reduction in funding in that context is a really significant blow. That reduction in funding relates to last year, the 2022-23 financial year. And for the current financial year, the government has yet to award practices the uplift that we've been talking about 
that's going ahead in England. And the BMA says the failure to follow DDRB advice in Northern Ireland is a disgrace. Yeah, I mean, the picture is perhaps a little better in Scotland, but GPs north of the border are still really worried, aren't they? What's happening in Scotland? In Scotland, the the picture's really different. Earlier this month, the BMA said it was disappointed that an uplift to the GP contract had fallen short of the amount needed to deliver a 6% pay rise across the board for GPs. So whereas in England, there was a 6% uplift for salaried GPs and practice staff only, in Scotland, all GPs, including partners, were promised a 6% pay rise in 2023-24. The government has uplifted contract funding by 7% overall to deliver that, but the BMA says that expenses are rising faster, so the award won't actually deliver the 6% uplift in full for partners. It's not big enough to do that. In Wales, meanwhile, although negotiations on a pay lift for GPs remain ongoing, a new contract deal has come into effect from this month after legislation to facilitate that was passed by the Senate. And the BMA said earlier this year that the contract change was something that largely formalised things practices are already doing, but it puts in place something they're calling a unified contract which basically means that all practices will now be expected to provide an expanded range of essential services. So some things that were previously optional, such as cervical screening, maternity services, contraceptive services, child health surveillance, and some minor surgery and vaccinations are now going to be delivered by all practices in Wales. But as I mentioned, from from what the BMA says, this isn't something they expect to be a major shift. It's really something that largely formalises an existing arrangement. Yeah, actually, I spoke to the chair of BMA Wales GP committee, Dr Gareth Ullman, about those changes to the contract, as well as some of the other pressures that general practice in Wales is facing for the podcast earlier this year. So we'll put a link to that episode in the description for this one. So you can find that if you want to listen to that. While we're here, there's another really interesting story from the past couple of weeks that's worth mentioning, which attracted a lot of attention on social media. Nick looked at how the number of appointments GP practices are delivering this year compares with 2019, before the pandemic began. What the figures show is that in the six months from March to August this year, general practice delivered 150,000 more appointments per working day than in the same six-month period in 2019. That increase has come at a time when numbers of fully qualified GPs are continuing to fall, There are around 900 fewer full-time equivalent GPs now than there were in 2019. And that just shows very clearly how intense the pressure facing practices is at the moment. I'd encourage anyone interested in reading more to have a look at the story on our website. In particular, there's a really good graph on that story that really shows how workload has changed since before the pandemic on a month-by-month basis. Before we go, it's just time for our good news story. And this week, it's about flu vaccination. Last week, the UK Health Security Agency published new data which suggested that last year's flu vaccination programme prevented around 25,000 hospitalisations in England. The data comes from new modelling by the UK HSA, suggesting that the flu jab can make a real difference. Data from last winter showed there were over 14,000 excess winter deaths as a result of flu, which was more than the number of deaths for COVID-19, which was just over 10,000. In total, there were just over 50,000 hospitalisations for flu last winter, including around 10,000 for children. The UK HSA said that data on the effectiveness of the vaccine last year suggested the jab reduced the risk of hospitalisation in children by two-thirds. The UK HSA has published all of this data as part of a push to encourage eligible adults to come forward for their flu jab and to bring their children in as well. In other good news, it's said that data from the flu season in Australia this year suggests that the flu vaccines that are in use are a good match for the flu strains in circulation. 
However, it's clear that the push on flu vaccination is perhaps in part due to fears that uptake could be lower this year than in previous years. Uptake figures for the last two winter seasons show that uptake of flu jabs across all groups was down last year compared with the year before, which is perhaps unsurprising because 2021 was that winter when Omicron was in circulation. There was that huge push on COVID-19 boosters, which probably also made everyone more aware of getting the flu vaccine. But obviously, this information about the effectiveness of flu vaccination provides a really strong argument for getting the jab. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick and thanks so much for listening. Don't forget that next week's podcast with that interview with RCGP Chair Professor Camilla Hawthorne will be out a bit earlier than usual on Wednesday, so do look out for that. Also, make sure you visit gponline.com to keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice, including our coverage from the Best Practice event, which took place on Wednesday and Thursday this week. 